Hello, and welcome to this special Property Week podcast. My name is Lem Bingley, and I'm the editor of Property Week. This is the second in a series of three podcasts looking at different aspects of the journey to net zero. It's part of our current campaign, Get Set for Net Zero. We're grateful for the support of our partners in promoting the campaign. Founding partner, Mishkondorea, lead partners, Hollis and Deepkey, knowledge partner, UKGBC, and supporting partner, Octopus Real Estate. Today's topic is about the need for collaboration to reach the property industry's goals with respect to sustainability and net zero. In property, perhaps more so than in any other sector, it's hard to go it alone if you want to get to net zero. You don't have to look further than the relationship between owner and occupier to realise it's going to take two to tango, and that's without considering the long list of stakeholders involved when it comes to building something from scratch or raising the money to fund development. So what does best practice look like? What are the pitfalls for the unwary when it comes to sharing the journey to net zero? To discuss this vital topic, I'm joined by four experts. Edward Hughes-Power from Mishkondorea, Sarah Sperling, who's also from Mishkondorea, Yutunde Abdul from UKGBC, and Lindsay Taylor from Deepkey. And I'd like to start by asking each of these people in turn to just say a few words about themselves and their organisation. So perhaps if we could start with you, Edward. Thanks, Lem. And thanks very much for having me today. So I'm a partner in the commercial real estate team at the law firm Mishkondorea. I've had over 15 years experience in my career with just over 10 years at Mishkons. We do a lot across the real estate space, across all different sectors. I personally do a lot in the development and pre-letting sector with a particular expertise, certainly in recent times, on the sustainability and green lease drafting, which I know we're going to be touching upon today. So, yeah, very much looking forward to the discussion today and thank you again for having me. Thanks, Edward. Yatunde, if you'd like to say a few words about yourself. Thanks, Lynn. So I work as Head of Climate Action at UKGBC and I've been there actually for just about two years. But over my career, I've worked in environmental consultancy and sustainable building consultancies, as well as standard setting bodies and in the certification world. Also have then brought all that back into realism by working with a real estate company to support them in implementing and developing their sustainability strategy. UKGBC, very much a membership organisation, focuses on driving forward and radically transforming sustainability in the built environment. So we see ourselves as being very, very lucky to have a membership base of over 700 members covering the entire value chain as well. So with that, very proud to call ourselves the voice of the sustainable built environment. Thanks. Uh, Sarah? My name's Sarah Sperling. I'm a partner in Mishcon's transactional banking team with a particular focus on advising lenders and borrowers on real estate finance. So financing the acquisition and development of property. In that context, in recent years, we as a team and I personally have had quite a lot of experience advising lenders and borrowers looking to navigate their way through sustainability-linked loan frameworks. And I suppose for me, what's of particular interest and what I think we might come on to today in our discussion is how we move from a position where Sustainability-linked loans and green loans are seen as predominantly in the larger institutional context where lenders and borrowers perhaps have more in terms of administrative function and expert team to support them in the additional work that's involved to a position where sustainability principles are embedded in loan documents as a matter of course. Thanks, Sarah. And finally, Lindsay? 
Thank you, Liam. My name's Lindsay Taylor and I am UK Head of Delivery for DeepKey. DeepKey I've been with since the beginning of this year and we support real estate companies, investors, owners and occupiers with obtaining their energy data, analysing their energy data to understand how they can hit their net zero goals through investment planning, collaboration with their tenants and really turning those actions and insights into the impact that is going to hit those sustainability goals that they have set out. Thanks, Lindsay. As I said in my introduction, the most obvious collaboration that we may need to think about in terms of making the journey to net zero is the one between owner and occupier or perhaps landlord and tenant, as we used to call them. Perhaps if I can start with you, Edward, from the law firm's perspective, is it just about putting terms into contracts to make sure that you all align your interests? Or I'm imagining it's a bit more complicated than that. Yes, it is. It's a very key aspect of collaboration is the green lease drafting. But what I think you need is two other key ingredients. And the reality is in an interconnected world, people need to work together to achieve their net zero targets, whether that's landlords wanting tenants to reduce their carbon emissions or tenants wanting landlords to make more energy efficient buildings. I think green lease drafting is crucial, but you need to bring it to life. And you do that, I think, through two other very important aspects. The first is, as Tony Blair once famously said, education, education, education. I think before you enter into the lease, the landlords and tenants need to talk to each other, particularly from a landlord perspective, because I suspect the landlords are going to come from very much a position of knowledge. And there'll be some very sophisticated tenants out there who really understand their net zero targets and how they achieve them, but there'll be others who won't. And so I think landlords need to educate their customers and their tenants. And then I think the other aspect is communication, which is during the lifetime of a lease, making sure that the landlords and the tenants are talking to each other regularly to effectively bring to life those green lease provisions that have been painstakingly negotiated and hopefully achieve their ultimate goal. I'll give you an example of how it comes to life. I know we're going to touch on this a bit later on in a bit more detail. And that's Neighbours, which is obviously this performance-based rating system. And you need both parties to work together to achieve that because it's an ongoing assessment throughout the lifetime of a lease. So for example, tenants who you know, might be using lighting power, that's going to directly impact the base building systems and as a result, impact the neighbours rating. So we've had lots of experience, certainly recently, of negotiating neighbours related drafting and leases to ensure that the landlords and tenants talk to each other, communicate, maybe there's some kind of rating achievement plan or some kind of energy budget to hopefully achieve that target. So very much, it's not just the green lease drafting, it's a much bigger picture. Thanks, Edward. And Lindsay, from your perspective at DeepCam, I guess any kind of agreement, it depends on having certainty about what's actually been achieved as well. You know, if you put something into a contract or you agree to achieve something, you need to have some sort of benchmark that details that. I mean, what's your experience from that perspective? Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. The first point is about that education for building education and then engagement with the tenants and the occupiers. You have to work together formalise the points of contact together and then actually say that it's not that fear of that data sharing. They're giving away any IP. It's about almost shared equity and you are working together and having that transparency of the data. So first being able to access 
their energy consumption and then being able to share that information back. So it's a two-way communication and the landlord or owner can then actually share the rest of the performance of the building and they can benchmark as well and understand where they are at in their journey to achieve that. And it absolutely starts with that base energy data to understand the shape of not just the tenant space, but the overall building so that then overall targets can be set and you can collaborate then together to actually make those decisions of maybe what investments are required and how that can be approached. I've heard anecdotally, it's not always easy to get the information from an occupier if you're the owner. And I guess that's something that needs to be thought about from the outset, perhaps at that least stage as well, the availability of that information or the agreement to share that information. Absolutely. And that's where it comes with the relationship. Build the relationship from day one and have that open conversation about what data is required and how you will be using it. I think the difficulty comes when it's maybe longer leases, there hasn't maybe been that engagement and then suddenly we're asking tenants for that information and they sort of take the step back and have that concern that what's going to happen with their data and being fully transparent with that then and taking them on the journey and actually seeing what information you can provide back. So in a scenario with DeepKey, we can actually work with the owners and then the owners can show the tenants on what their consumption, their greenhouse gas measurements are, and they can then set those targets behind that. Thanks. Yatunde, you mentioned in your introduction that UKGBC is a membership body, and I imagine you have members that represent both owners and occupiers. What's your perspective on the best way to approach this collaboration? Because, you know, presumably all of your members want to achieve net zero as quickly as possible. And how are they establishing sort of best practice from your experience? I was thinking about what else I could add, just hearing Edward and Lindsay speak, because a lot of it is about building a space where there's trust from the landlord side that the tenant perceives that, and also from the tenant side, especially towards the landlord. So the owner occupiers within our membership very much come from that perspective in terms of trying to create a space of trust. It could be through tenant engagement meetings. It could be through other activities. It could be when the green lease agreement is being negotiated and is trying to start off on that foot. But ultimately building that space of trust makes things like communication and education just much, much easier. And then looking at it as an ongoing partnership as well. So I think a lot of the asset owners within our membership, my conversations with them, that's the space they try and come from to support ongoing collaboration over the life of that tenant within that asset. I suppose the other advantage of a body like UKGBC is it allows owners and occupiers to talk to each other when they're not necessarily in that direct relationship of being the owner and occupier talking about their particular situation, that you can have that discussion more in abstract and make progress about understanding things from the other's perspective in a neutral space, can't you? Absolutely. We have a whole range of collaboration cafes that we run, as well as solution forums and other types of forums as well. And those spaces are designed to just bring together the value chain owners, occupiers, contractors, etc., together to have that open dialogue to look at the solutions that can give them what they need to get on with their net zero journeys. It is great to be able to support those type of dialogues and discussions in that type of forum. And Sarah, we've already heard from your 
colleague Edward, from his perspective, I know you, you do quite different jobs within Mishcon. So again, addressing this basic point about how do we get to a good place in that collaboration between the owner and the occupier? What's yeah, your I would, I suppose, as a banking lawyer, I would extend the relevant relationships to include any lender to a landlord borrower because typically a lender is going to be interested in some degree of oversight and approval of lease provisions for the property that they're lending on and their interests will obviously be largely aligned to landlord borrower but it does offer an opportunity there as well to exercise some control and to put in place some potential requirements to encourage sustainable practice within a lease and they are often documented in the loan documents that then landlord borrower enters into their lender so it's important as well that the collaboration extends in a sense to include the lender as stakeholder and to make sure as Lindsay and the rest have said that there's an alignment there and everybody is having a conversation which is consistent throughout the chain. Obviously, to the extent that the landlord borrower has a sustainability linked loan, which incorporates key performance indicators or sustainability performance targets relating to the property, it's quite likely that achievement of those is going to require some degree of oversight, management of tenants' behaviours on the property. So it's important to think about it consistently throughout and make sure that those are aligned. One of the things that strikes me is net zero as a goal is not in isolation. When we talk these days about ESG, the broader issues around sustainability and equity and governance and the onus on companies to behave honourably, I suppose, for want of a better word, or at least transparently and honestly and fairly. And when it comes to making agreements across multiple parties, sometimes there's a tendency for the stronger party to put all of the risk onto the weaker party. And I guess that doesn't really align with the ESG goals. Do you see the sharing of risk as a difficult or problematic part of the agreements that we might see between owners and occupiers? From my perspective within the loan piece, the key is that engagement and discussion. Because from a lender's perspective, if they are putting in place a sustainability-linked loan, it's inherent in their thinking that they need to be setting realistic targets, but ambitious targets, because to satisfy the criteria of a sustainability-linked loan, it needs to not just be recording what is day-to-day standard, but encouraging improvement. It is a slightly different approach for standard lender-borrower approach. So it does require more collaboration for exactly the reasons we've talked about. People with the information need to be engaged in the discussion setting those KPIs and SPTs, otherwise they won't function. I think just one point to add, we've obviously touched on landlord-tenant, we've touched on lender-borrower. I just want to also touch on the construction piece just briefly, which is the collaboration that's required between a developer and a contractor in order to make sure that the goal that the lander wants to achieve with sustainability targets, whether that's BRIAM, EPC, which are the more prediction-based targets, or as we touched on Neighbours, which is a more performance-based target, is making sure that within that documentation that we also step it all down. So it's this chain of covenants that need to sort of run through all these different contractual arrangements and making sure that at every stage of each legal aspect that there's collaboration across the various different parties. And particularly with a contractor developer, I think one of the key aspects is the design, is making sure that the contractor, the design team, the developer are talking to each other throughout the design review process to make sure that in each and every point 
we're looking towards those sustainability targets and making sure that that design is ultimately going to achieve that target. If I can just come back to you, Sarah, you said in your introduction about you'd like to see green leases become the norm. Do you think we're near that or miles away from that? (laughs) I think we're getting there, certainly. And I've used the term a lot, but maybe just worth a point of terminology, the distinction between green loans and sustainability-linked loans. Green loans fundamentally are loans that are made to finance a green purpose. So the obvious is a finance a wind farm, nice and easy. And actually, in some sense, it is easier dealing with a green loan because the green aspect is front and centre. A sustainability link loan can be provided for any purpose, but it has embedded within it sustainability performance targets set at such a level as to encourage improvement, as I said earlier. And it has also incentives, importantly, for the borrower to meet those targets. And typically, it's a kind of reduction in interest, reduction in interest margin, if you hit certain targets. And that's the one that is certainly growing in significance within the market and growing in kind of interest. Lots and lots of lenders are very interested in building their sustainability link loan book, for the same reason as a lot of businesses are interested in getting to grips with this area, which is the kind of stakeholder interest, encouraging talent within the, you know, all the good reasons why this is a key topic, apply equally to lenders. The difficulty is education, as Ed has mentioned, because there's quite a lot of complexity. In order to set sustainability targets, there needs to be an understanding of the business, its operations, what it can achieve, what it's currently achieving and how it can improve. And that's a lot of conversation that has to be whittled down into sort of very specific targeted drafting that works as a framework for the borrower and the lender and can be monitored and verified over time. And that's a lot of work. And at the moment, I think there is a sense that in some circumstances that the extra time and energy at negotiation stage and then ongoing relationship monitoring, the the benefit between the incentive, the reduction in margin and the cost of that negotiation and ongoing monitoring doesn't make it worth a borrower's while to engage in that. So that, I think, is a piece that needs to be worked on and will hopefully improve with greater awareness, understanding and greater use in the market. So lots of industry bodies are trying to formulate frameworks and principles and guidance to make it a bit easier to have these conversations. Many, many clearing banks in particular, but big institutional lenders have very established teams who are well-versed and have access to experts to help navigate. But where there is uncertainty, obviously, then you lead into concerns about greenwashing, that if you haven't properly done the diligence to set really sensible, achievable, but ambitious targets, there's a risk and there's a perceived risk of a lack of integrity and therefore an accusation of greenwashing, which inevitably means the less well-versed lenders and borrowers are, are sort of steering clear. So there's that piece, I think, that needs to be worked through to make it a wider application. We're going to stick with this topic of green-related or ESG-related finance. And just to clear up one of the basics, perhaps, Sarah, I mean, it's easy to understand what's in it for the borrower, that they might stand to get a better rate if they hit agreed KPIs or targets during the period of the loan. What's really in it for the lender? What do they gain from offering a beneficial interest rate, for example, to someone who's hitting ESG goals, which don't necessarily affect them as the lender? I think the short answer they do. And as I say, the same principles that apply to any business around stakeholder employee engagement and attraction of talent all applies to lenders as a business. Many lenders have signed up to frameworks committing to net zero targets and 
increasingly industry bodies and regulators are encouraging lenders to show leadership in this area. And then if you think about the kind of property lending sphere, I think most of us know and most lenders know it is only going to become more and more regulated and more and more important to have sustainable buildings. That being the case, if you're funding a building and you see in the future that that building is going to fall foul of regulation coming down the line, it makes sense from a value perspective to try and improve the rating of that building. So there's many, many reasons, I think, why lenders have this sort of front and centre in their thinking. And do you think that motivation combined with the issues you raised around the suspicions of greenwashing, things like that, do you think that's going to mean that the discount that one might enjoy through this kind of borrowing is going to have to be substantial or meaningful at some point? Or It's really interesting. So one of the live debates at the moment, and this kind of again goes to the market feeling its way in some sense, is whether or not that incentive should work both ways. So we've talked about a reduction in margin if you hit particular KPIs, but there's also a discussion about maybe having an increase in margin if you fall below a certain standard, which makes some sense and it sort of makes it feel like more of a viable incentive for a borrower. But then you hit the difficulty that a bank could feasibly be getting a benefit from funding a borrower who has actually got a poor sustainability performance level. And some lenders have decided that what they'll do to try and address that and avoid criticism is they'll give the increase to a charity that invests in sustainability initiatives. So it all becomes quite complicated because there's a lot of different things to think about. And that kind of goes back to why some of the more alternative funders, smaller funders, less established institutions are finding it quite difficult to find their way. And I think bodies like the Loan Market Association, it's an industry body that supports and represents lenders in the market, are trying to find frameworks and find sort of best practice that can put some regularization around how it will work because it will give so much more comfort if people can say that they are approaching it in the kind of market standard way. A lot of non-obvious consequences that are falling out of this movement. Lindsay, from your perspective, how do you help your clients when they're looking to take out ESG lending? I think that the key now that lenders are asking for is that transparency and data, clearly auditable data, as you mentioned in discussing, that there's that fear of greenwashing and actually one of the targets achievable and then to reporting on those targets, are they actually being met? And the only way that you can do that is through that transparency of data. It is not easy to get hold of, as we know, and make sure that the calculations are correct. So really what we are doing is leveraging with our clients of getting access to that energy data, looking at the actions that they are performing and what are the impacts of those actions so you can actually measure the carbon savings through that. So taking a particular asset, are they looking at smaller energy savings of actions day to day and then from an investment perspective as well? And where we've actually come to now from an investment plan and perspective to help show these targets and goals is to have a clear database of the impact of savings that you would have for each action, whether it's looking at installation of new BMS, heat source pumps, LED lighting, windows, so on. And then actually what is the savings calculated with that 
dependent on the archetype of the building as well, because that can have a huge variation. So with the wealth of data that we have now across Europe is focusing on that level of granularity so that if a occupier or owner doesn't have all the data, we can support them with that to calculate. And then we can see actually the impact of their actions and forecasting for the future as well. So if they're going to say we are setting a goal out for 10 years, 20 years to net zero, how are they going to get there? And actually that it's realistic for the investment and they'll have the capital available to make those investments. Because it's very well and good saying, absolutely, we're going to be net zero and we're going to do all this great stuff within the asset itself. But actually the money then that's involved to be able to do that and will those actions then actually result in it being net zero so we can support and we're modeling that data for them so that then they can have the discussion with the investors, with the banks to make sure that the right decisions are being made and it's not just trying to look for the next year and trying to model through and say, okay, we'll achieve this by next year. It's really looking at that longer term strategy because I think we're now hitting that point that it's got to be about action. Time is moving and I think we're sort of at the point with, I think it's seven years we've now got to sort of half the emissions in the built environment for the Paris Agreement scenario. So absolutely now the understanding and within this economic environment as well, it's really important that it's focused in the right way and having those open discussions and that transparency of data. And I know DeepKey is collecting information and you know aggregated anonymized data across its entire customer base. And so you can say with some certainty whether a particular organization is a leader or a lagger compared to its peers. You know, so that information has got to be valuable as well, hasn't it? Absolutely. And Over the last couple of years, we've released the ESG index, taking that data from all our assets, really looking at the archetypes of buildings, as I mentioned as well, and the sectors, because again, every sector performs very differently in how you can save the monies and the actions required. So providing that benchmark and for a lot of owners it's looking at their portfolio overall and say really where do I need to focus on let's look at the top down and then come bottom up once we can really understand where are the assets that need the most attention that are varying from that benchmark if you're looking at the office sector in a certain country and actually are we way underperforming on our consumption to hit those goals so then what they can do is actually say these are the assets we need to focus on first because they're going to need more investment or more time to get to the point of their net zero goals and prioritize that way then from there it's going bottom up then and discussing right on the assets with the occupiers on how we're going to then get into that granular detail to reach those goals. Yeah, that benchmarking is really important. Yeah, Tunde, UKGBC helps to provide information and aggregate sort of impetus and things. Going back to the topic of green linked lending or ESG linked borrowing, what's your organisation's view or has it provided information to help people navigate that space? 
There's a lot being mentioned in this space within our membership and obviously just in general as well. And it's very interesting, I think, for us at UKGBC to think about not being in the finance world, whether this is an area that we should really take a lead on or whether it makes better sense to collaborate with other bodies and institutions out there to provide guidance um, to support this whole area. But we do have a work stream ongoing at the moment that does relate to finance and value. And that's all about raising awareness and promoting collaboration amongst different bodies and organisations as well. Because when you start to look at the whole landscape of the built environment, that value chain, there's different levels of understanding for different organisational types as well. And a lot of the conversation here so far for me seems to relate to organisations that do this day to day or have to interact with it day to day. But when you start to think about SMEs Mm -hmm. and maybe smaller organisations, all of us equally need to be thinking about this whole topic. How do we bring them with us and don't overwhelm them with what is a lot of detail? which might not be necessary for their situation. So the finance and value work stream is really looking at developing guidance at a basic level to raise awareness and not repeat whatever is out there already, but to really just break down across the value chain for different member groups for them to understand. For instance, sustainability index linked loans. For some organisations, that might just be, what is that? For other organisations, it might be a case of what criteria do you need to consider and set? For other organisations, it might be more detailed case studies about Well, in this instance, this organisation did this and this is how it worked for them. You're a comparable organisation starting off on your journey. So what could you be thinking about and what detail should you be going into? And then another aspect might be even diving into, should there be set criteria for sustainability index loans to allow comparability in some way across the whole sector? So it really depends. And the finance and value work stream is looking at all of those, but primarily looking at raising awareness in general. Thanks. Turning to you, Edward, this whole podcast is about collaboration, but I can't look at a lawyer without thinking about disputes as well, which is perhaps the opposite. Does this whole area of you know, setting benchmarks, trying to link that to financial performance, I mean, it seems like there might be the odd problem about when those good aspirations meet reality. What advice do you give your clients around this area of linking their finances to their ESG achievements? It's a really good question. And there's a good reason I didn't become a litigator because I wouldn't be a very good one. <laughs> I much prefer collaborating with transactional lawyers, but putting my litigation hat on for one minute. I think it's a really difficult question, isn't it? Because you set out the start of a lease with all good intentions to include lots of aspirational targets and achievements. And if one finds from, say, the landlord's perspective that the tenant isn't necessarily achieving or complying with those obligations, technically it's a breach of the lease. Depending on how far you've gone with those green lease provisions, it's technically a breach of the lease and the landlord has at its disposal all the remedies that it would have with any other breach of the lease, whether it be repair or alienation or failure to pay the rent. But I think the reality is is landlords need to tread very, very carefully in terms of how they respond to that breach because I think it comes back to the point we've been discussing throughout. The theme is communication, collaboration, trust, and making sure that that relationship is sustained throughout the lifetime of the lease so that landlords can work with tenants to avoid those breaches occurring in the future. Interestingly, and it's something I'll definitely go away and discuss with our litigators, whether we've had any experience of that, probably not a lot of it, because obviously green lease drafting so far has been quite soft. It's been what we would call light green. Whereas I think over the last sort of 18 to 24 months, we've seen that go a lot further and landlords really demanding a lot more from the tenants. So I think that'll come out in the market over the next few years. Well, yes, we shall wait and see with perhaps trepidation. I don't know. 
Yeah, Tunde, coming back to you, Edward earlier on mentioned neighbours and the arrival of standards like that, which are based on actual achievements, sort of measured performance data about how much energy you've used compared to perhaps your peers or what you intended to do. And that's very distinct from something like the Energy Performance Certificate, EPC, where it's based on an assessor having a look at the building and deciding whether it's efficient or not. It seems to me that moving towards standards like Neighbours, and I think the upcoming revision of BRIAM is going to move in this direction about really monitoring what's happening. It's a significant change, isn't it? And it is one which puts the focus on teamwork and collaboration across perhaps multiple parties. You know. What's your view? Does it feel like a watershed time where we're shifting in this direction? I think it's a very exciting time. It comes at a time where that need for consistent measurement and reporting is so key to help us understand how well we're doing against our, so when I say our, the UK's 2050 target as well. And also having a compatible base as well for all that are participating to be able to be measured upon or against is key. And removing the need for consultancies to have draft strategies that they provide for clients that they then do over a period of years and then there's the issue of well how is that compared to this building and this other locality having a core group of standards that just focus on that I think is really exciting it comes at a time when industry collaboration in general is growing in a way that I feel we've not seen before my experience five years ago, when I think about the development of a standard coming, the net zero carbon building standard, which will also have quite a strong performance measurement element within it. I don't know if we would have seen so many professional institutions and organisations come together to develop that standard. So just to take a step back and maybe just to say a bit more about the net zero carbon building standard, it actually comes out of work that UKGBC did to develop a framework definition for defining net zero for buildings in the UK. That was a guidance document. But what was very clear is that we did need verifiable, certifiable standard against which any organisation, any building in the UK, they could apply it and from then be able to measure themselves and then think about that compatibility across the board moving forward as well. So there, professional institutions, so REBA, SIBSI, and I'm sure I'm going to miss some organisations here, I'm not going to list them all, the Better Buildings Partnership, RICS and others came together alongside UKGBC to start developing the standard alongside their members and then opening that up more widely to come together and collaborate and basically put in place what is needed to support us in moving forward with this net zero carbon agenda. And it's fantastic that Neighbours also is becoming more established in the UK in that way and other standards as well. So is it a watershed moment? Absolutely. As again, I think the word for me is quite exciting to see this proactivity first off in coming together and adopting and, and collaborating in this way. I think Edward, you were saying about the discussions that take place with neighbours between tenant and landlord to discuss and negotiate and plan for the future as well really exciting because ultimately, as we all know, and I think is just a recurring theme as part of this discussion, without that dialogue, communication and collective working, we're just not going to get there. So very exciting. We're looking forward to seeing how it all pans out. Yes, I know that there's hope that that first draft of the net zero carbon building standard might appear early in 2024. And my understanding is going to be sort of technology agnostic as well. So it's not going to say, oh, well, you need to use neighbours. It's going to say you need to use something which monitors energy consumption in real time and then the particular standard or how you adopt that would be up to the individual parties wouldn't it and that type of flexibility is so important because the variety of buildings that we have 
at different age types, different localities, locations and complexities as well mean that it's important to allow as much flexibility in that discussion and also planning for the future in terms of how certain aspects are demonstrated. So that seems a sensible move on the part of the net zero carbon building standard. And Sarah, from your perspective coming at it from the legal point of view, I mean, a move towards something which is perhaps continually monitored, that provides more granular data, that's perhaps more defensible data. I suppose EPCs are subject to quite a bit of argument, I think. That's got to be better, hasn't it? Yeah, and I think from a lender's perspective, it goes back to what we were talking about, how you set and then measure and judge KPIs in order to sort of tick the box, if you like, of a sustainability-linked loan. It's interesting. So I think it was just earlier this year, the FCA had done a review of sustainability-linked loans through the course of 2022, and of the ones that they looked at and they reviewed... They pulled out two key criticisms. One was that the classifications used across the board varied so considerably that it was really hard to pull consistency out from there. And that in half of those transactions, they felt the KPIs weren't robust enough. And I think against that backdrop, for most lenders, what they want is exactly that kind of measured data It takes some of the heat of risk of greenwashing, a judgment that they have not appropriately set or verified their data. So, yeah, I think it's got to be helpful in terms of consistency and take up. And if we take a standard like Neighbours UK, it's not a case if you qualify once and that's the building's rating. It's reviewed every year. And if you don't hit the... It's that rigour, I think, is incredibly helpful. Yeah. Going to the earlier point about disputes as well, the more granular the data, the earlier you can see that you might be drifting away from target, the earlier you can take action to make sure that you hit them. And that whole process of being more aware of what's going on has got to reduce the likelihood of disputes and things, hasn't it? And Lindsay, I guess this movement towards more measured standards, more real-time data and things like that's got to be music to the ears of provider like Deep Key. That's your bread and butter, isn't it? Absolutely. It's try and keep things as simple and as easy as possible for us to measure, that we don't want to have people spending so much time having to wade through data, analyse it, that then could be error-prone. So it's got to be about automation. It's got to be working with the energy providers to make that process easier, especially in the UK, that we can get more real-time data so that it can be analysed on an ongoing basis. The conversations are ongoing, and we are really seeing that now with our clients. Some clients are getting to that point of, okay, we're comfortable with the data data now we know it's clean so we can make the informed decisions and we can monitor it effectively say on a quarterly basis and having those conversations with asset managers with the occupiers on this is the progress we're seeing and celebrate those successes at last so it's very much that move towards We've got the data. Let's make sure the data is just flowing and it's all about that analysis and how we can make the impact and measure it effectively. And then investors have got the confidence in the data and they can make those decisions off the back of it as well. And then if it comes to then the investments and things, they can see clearly the return that they will get on those investments and the impact that it will have. Edward, from your perspective, is there a lot of knowledge amongst the parties that you deal with about these different standards and hunger for more granular measurements? What's your experience? If you're dealing with the really sophisticated landlords who, you know, the buildings they're developing are sort of, you know, grade A offices, take the office sector, for example, then they are really well versed on a lot of these new standards, particularly neighbours, and they're really pushing the curve. I think it comes back to the point about it's education. 
because I think there's going to be a lot of people out there. You know, take a tenant who's looking to take in a couple of floors in a neighbour's rated building. Some of those tenants will come to that building potentially with no knowledge whatsoever of what neighbours is. And so it's about making sure that landlords educate their tenants. But I think, as Ethan Day was saying, it's a really exciting time, particularly for us lawyers negotiating these provisions, because this is really new to the market. So we're putting provisions into leases that tenants have probably never seen before and looking at the way they're going to react to those provisions and negotiating them and see where we end up. And it's making sure that landlords get to a position where they actually, it's having those provisions in the lease, actually do what they're intended to do. And so we're in a real position where there's no really market position at the minute on some of these particularly neighbour-related provisions. So the next sort of 6 to 12, 18 months are going to be really interesting. And as we said, it'll be interesting when the net zero carbon building standard comes along. I think that will galvanise a whole additional bout of change, won't it? One hopes. Absolutely. We touched on there the business of sort of thinking about how best practice might be shared and how knowledge might be shared across the industry. Do you have particular thoughts on ways in which perhaps an owner might help different occupiers, perhaps within a multi-tenancy building, to align their interests or align their efforts? One of these things that we've seen in leases for a few years now is these tenant forums, sustainability forums, which in practice I think we're seeing a lot more tenants. So if you're taking a multi-let building, you know, these sustainability forums will be monthly, quarterly. And it gives an opportunity for tenants not just to talk to their contact at the landlord, but also other tenants in the building as well to collaborate and talk to each other about best practice to try and help improve the overall energy efficiency of the building. So I think that's one really key aspect. And obviously, in terms of what Tunde does and the organisation she works for, I think those organisations are absolutely crucial to the overall achievement of these sustainability targets is having that forum where people can talk, as you said before, Lem, outside of that particular building, but more generally talking to each other and just sharing best practice. I think that's a really important aspect because I think if you're an inquisitive thinker and you want to improve your company's sustainability position, then talking to other people across the industry is a great way to share knowledge and just to improve one's performance. And Yatunde, I suppose sharing knowledge, that's one of the reasons that UKGBC exists, isn't it? To try and share best practice. In what way do you encourage perhaps collaboration between occupiers? I'm trying to think about how we specifically encourage collaboration between occupiers because in general, we want the built environment to collaborate across the board. Yeah. So it would really be for the different organisations or the different members to come together and determine how best that might take place. You've seen good examples of owners helping multiple occupiers to raise their sites or improve their practices. I was thinking about our solutions and case study work and within that part of UKGBC, that's all about inviting examples of good practice and collaboration. And that can be through any form and any means. Sometimes it's tech focused, sometimes it's behavioural focused. I was at a meeting the other day where we were looking at the model of a particular architectural practice, actually, where they look at the design side of what they do, but then move that into the implementation and landing side of that. And by that, I mean taking occupation of the building. And then they also move that into supporting the operational management of that building over its life, which is a really, really interesting model because you start off with architects. They're committed to that project and that building at whatever form through its entire life, which not only in itself is a great commitment, but requires a great amount of collaboration with different stakeholders throughout that life of the asset and the ownership of the asset as well, if that lies with the architectural firm. So in terms of owners collaborating with 
tenants and multi-tenant stakeholders. That was an example the other day, actually, that came up in a meeting that I was at. But going back to our case study work and solutions work, there is a whole wealth of information on there looking at different angles of collaboration and good practice and great practice in the environment. And it's there really to absorb all that type of information and make it openly available to share for anyone. So you don't have to be a UKGBC member to engage with that platform. You also don't have to be a UKGBC member to apply to submit a case study or apply to submit a solution because the whole point is that the information is there freely available for everyone to help us move as a UK forward towards achieving that 2050 target. And Lindsay, from your perspective, Deeply has multiple customers and we've talked about the value of that through things like the ESG index where people can compare their own progress to an aggregate. Does Deeply have user forums and things like that where multiple users of your system might be able to talk to each other about best practice? Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen that's key. As we've grown within the UK, that is essential that our clients are talking to each other and we have an open forum. Earlier on this year, we started our Impact Forward lunches, sort of lunch and learn. So we have panels and discussions about the key topics that are coming up and our clients can share what they're doing, the challenges that they're facing and see how actually maybe can they do things slightly differently and that's worked really positively and in fact we had one just a couple of weeks ago again and it was talking about the very thing of collaboration and that sort of top down and the number of people that are involved in the chain when it's thinking about achieving net zero goals from the investor level right down to a facilities manager level and them knowing their building inside out and they are proving so fruitful. Additional to that we're also sitting down with our clients and really saying actually how can we measure things better? How can we develop our platform? Because it's not also just looking at the energy, but also at the social side and the governance side as well. And how do we incorporate all of that to make that measurements easier on everyone? Because as we know, energy data, it's numbers, we can process that and that's fairly straightforward. But then when it comes to the social side, how do you measure that? How do you tangibly communicate that again with your investors and the progress that you're making in that area, in your local community, for the asset itself, with the various occupiers? So we are very much working with our research and development team and our different clients to say, okay, how are you driving this and how can we make it easier for you to manage and access that data that you can then provide and benchmark to the relevant parties? Just to add something on the back of what Lindsay was saying, it just reminded me, I think, coming back to how do we share best practice, Lindsay, you were mentioning you've got clients around the table to sort of have an open discussion. Sarah and I were part of what we would call our sustainability circles, which were hosted by our sustainability business, Mishcon Purpose, and that just reminded me just how useful that was where you know you invited certain clients who were really ahead of the game and were more than willing to share knowledge and then you had other clients saying actually I don't really know a lot what am I going to add to this and I said well actually it's about getting around the table and just listening to other people and they were really keen to come along and actually we did three or four and they were excellent really really helpful and clients went away saying you know what that was incredibly useful just getting people from different sectors around the table and just having an open discussion and it was yeah very very useful indeed. Yeah. 
I think that's right. No one person has the answer. We have to come together and those different perspectives, different types of sectors we're dealing with and the different user groups of knowledge. And it is about coming together and actually then we can achieve the goals because we're doing it collaboratively. I don't know if you've got anything you want to add to that, Sarah. A very similar story, I would say, in the sense that it's kind of still evolving and it's the conversation and kind of lived experience and reporting back that's in the sort of finance sphere is what's really moving us forward. So I've mentioned them before, but the Loan Market Association first came up with their suggested sustainability-linked loan principles in, I think, 2019. And they've had several iterations since. And those updates have come from looking at some of the very, very big sustainability-linked loans with great big kind of property developers and clubs of clearing banks and how did they do it? And then as the market is evolving, taking more and more experience and reflecting that in updated principles that get finessed as they go along. I think we all have experience of that being how the discussion is evolving. So, yeah, I think getting people around the table to discuss their experience is key. Thank you. I want to move on to a slightly different topic. Obviously, if we want to make rapid progress towards net zero across the built environment, sometimes that might mean intervening in buildings where there are tenants with long leases. Edward, perhaps turning to you as someone who's got experience of drafting agreements between different parties, how on earth do you approach that if someone's got 10 years until the next break clause and you've got a building that's not particularly efficient? How do you approach that conundrum? Yeah, I heard a stat the other day, I think it's been quoted a few times, that 80% of the buildings that will exist in 2050 have already been built. So this is going to come up more and more, is how do you retrofit your buildings, potentially with tenants still in place? The answer is it can be difficult as possible. I think there's practical and legal considerations. I think the legal considerations are that you need to appoint a lawyer to review the leases that will continue and look at the potential obstacles to doing the development around them. So some of the key things that you would look at are the quiet enjoyment covenant. You'd look at what rights they have over the remainder of the building and whether you need to suspend those rights to allow you to carry out that retrofitting redevelopment. It may be you need to negotiate a separate deal with those tenants. Again, communication is absolutely key. You need to be talking to those tenants way ahead of submitting any planning permission to talk to them about what you're intending on doing, how you're going to protect their interests, that you're going to minimise interference, that you're not going to cause any nuisance claims. So I think there is quite an important analysis that needs to be done by the lawyers to ensure that you can actually carry out the development around those tenants. But it's possible. I've seen it done many times, but it does need careful consideration. Lindsay, again, from your perspective, I mean, a lot of your customers will have fairly large portfolios. And I suppose one of the key considerations is to make sure you start in the right place, especially when you've got the added consideration of when leases expire and who's more amenable to interruption, etc. So, Yeah, absolutely. I was talking on this very subject to one of our larger clients the other day, and it's challenging. They've got real challenges to have that interaction with your FRI leases where occupiers, they just don't want to engage. They've sort of closed the door. And this is where very much having to take that top-down approach of looking at the portfolio overall and actually saying, let's plan effectively on the ones that 
we can work on and make the most impact today and then maybe plan through the years if it is a lease break or taking that time to know actually longer lead-in time for conversations and to get somewhere with that occupier to be able to make that impact. And because we know we need to make action now, it's very much focusing on, okay, let's do it where we can today and we'll pick the others up when we know we're going to have the space and time to be able to have those open conversations or when it is a lease break. And unfortunately, it is reaching that point that they just having to leave some assets until there's a clear lease Mm. break. Otherwise, it's going to get costly with those negotiations. And also they know they've got a lot of other work to do in the meantime with other assets. So being pragmatic about it. And then on the other hand, again, it's that openness of communication with those occupiers and that trust and belief with each other of actually this is the right thing to do. So it is finding that balance between the two areas. I don't know whether you were able to give advice. I mean, if Lindsay mentioned FRI arrangements for repairing and insuring leases where a lot of the responsibility for the building is put onto the occupier. In that situation, is the onus just on the occupier? Can the owner stand back and go, well, that's somebody else's problem? I mean, I guess that's the last thing we want. We want everybody to get together and work on these things together, don't we? Absolutely. And I think the time is over for us to say that's somebody else's problem. Time's of the essence now. So looking for ways that we can try and overcome problems that we would have just left alone in the past has to be a priority. So without being able to give any advice, just commenting on what seems quite a difficult situation, I think the theme that we've been talking about that's been coming up around about collaboration is really important and trust. It's interesting to think about for some in those type of situations and those type of lease arrangements, why they might not want to even engage. Is it a security sensitive building in any ways? Is it just a case of they've just been there for a long time and don't like to speak to the landlord and want any interaction whatsoever, regardless of what it is? So I think that dialogue, communication, education, those themes that we've been talking about are going to be really important in that type of conversation. And it might take a long time or it might be a case of waiting until you can renegotiate the lease. But in some cases, it might well be that step-by-step approach, one step at a time, and seeing that we get there but it's important I would say to continue to chip away continue to have that conversation and hopefully it will get to where it needs to be. I'll just add one difficulty we haven't touched on yet which I think is important to mention is you might have leases that were negotiated 10-15 years ago they might have been granted inside the 1954 Act so the tenant has the right to remain security of tenure trying to get green lease provisions into that lease on the renewal actually it's going to be quite difficult. We had a recent case earlier this year in the county court where the landlord was trying to do the right thing, was trying to introduce green lease provisions. And the court actually said that that wasn't permitted under the 54 Act. So the landlord couldn't introduce something that was genuinely for a good reason. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the courts approach that particular issue because there's going to be leases across the country all inside the Act. And with the government's drive towards sustainability, are the courts going to change tact and change approaches? Be interested to see. And do you have a view on the topic we were just talking about on FRI leases in particular? Does that tend to shift responsibility for effectively everything onto the occupiers? I mean, in putting sustainability to one side, yes. I mean, repair, for example, take our 
building Michigan's at you know Africa House you know we've got a full structural lease of that building and so we're entirely responsible for the repair and maintenance but a landlord has to accept that it retained well it's got a vested interest got retained its capital value so it wants to ensure that that building is run in the most energy efficient way possible because it's got stakeholders right throughout the value chain who will have an interest in that so they absolutely need to negotiate provisions within that lease in much the same way as a multi-let building it's no different and if a landlord wanted to put solar panels on your building they could only do it with your permission, presumably. Correct, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Tunde, just coming back to you, I mean, in time for COP28, the UK GBC put out a, a sort of progress report on the built environment's journey to net zero, and I think it was a fairly sort of must-try-harder verdict, quite a lot harder, actually, that we really are running out of time to actually collaborate as an industry and reach net zero. It was a real wake-up call, wasn't it, that we haven't made the progress that we need to make. Absolutely. And I think to us, unfortunately, it wasn't that much of a surprise that it did come out with that message. It feels like it's an underestimation to say, and it's been said so many times before, that we need to just double down and get on with it, really. And I think what's really heartening is that industry is doing exactly that. There isn't the onus on necessarily waiting for government to lead the way anymore, but coming together and looking at what is needed and trying to as much as possible to put that in place without regulation and the regulation that might be needed um, necessarily being there. But regardless, there's a lot that's been achieved to date where industry could have been doing a lot more than they have as a group been doing to date. I think the progress report is a great line in the sand to see how the UK has been doing in terms of the roadmap projections, but really also a good marker to support us in thinking about what else we need to do and how we plan for that going forward, be it through the key stakeholders highlighted by the action plan, of which there were 14, also including finance, owner occupiers and contractors, material producers and many more, but just in general as well for organisations like UKGBC, our membership and also the professional institutions to work with their members and other stakeholders as well to think about how we all plan and then enact those plans before the next progress report due out in the next two to three years. We're almost at the end of our allotted time, so I'm just going to quickly go around the table and starting with you, Yatunde. What's a good place to go and find out more if one of our listeners wants to educate themselves about how to best collaborate with their other stakeholders? I have to say UKGBC's website. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the solutions and innovation section within the website is a really, really good place to learn about just the wealth of potential opportunities out there to collaborate. Thanks. Sarah, any tips? I mean, we've heard about some great bodies today, but in a finance space, I think the Low Market Association is a real leader in terms of setting out principles and guidance and all sorts of materials if you're interested. Thanks. Lindsay? I think definitely look at the Deep Key ESG Index and really start to understand those benchmarks and actually what targets should be heading for and understand where you're at on that journey. And, of course, it starts with the data. Start getting good data and from there you can build upon it. You don't need to be a deep key customer to see the basic data on that ESG index. No, not at all. It's available for everyone to view. Edward? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of people out there who trying to understand the shifting expectations and the jargon, but also creating value for their company. Trying to work your way through that can be quite difficult. So I think just adding on to what everyone said, there's obviously wider organisations out there who obviously, like the UKGBC, who obviously have a lot of information on their website and other specialist sustainability consultants. There's plenty of people out there who are willing to help people achieve their 
goals. And it would be wrong for me not to plug the Mishcon Purpose brand, which obviously we do a lot in that space. Absolutely. Well, I'm crushed. I must say, absolutely crushed. No one around the table said Property Week is the best place to find helpful information, (laughs) but there we are. I'll add that myself as my advice. So stick with us. From me and on behalf of my guests today, thank you very much for sharing your expertise. Thank you very much to everyone who's listened to this podcast. If you got all the way to the end, congratulations. This is one of three podcasts on this particular topic around net zero. So please have a look at the Property Week website to find the other two. But for now, from me, thank you very much for listening.